I started this like five years ago. Um, we did one one season, and uh, then uh, that's been five years. Yeah, three years ago we tried again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we got any episodes no. out. I don't think we collected any stories. But our website remained up to date for three years. So uh, so this is our second our second attempt, our second chance, oh. you might say. Oh, God. At restarting the second page. Uh, <laughs> that's okay, we're not professionals. But yeah, I'm Sean Hansen. I'm Harris Laparoff. And we are co-hosting this season of The Second Page. A storytelling podcast. For amateur storytellers. So this week's theme is second chances, apropos for us since this is our second chance at this season. And we will have stories from several contributors on different second chances in their own lives. Alright Sean, so what stories first? I believe that would be yours. Oh, the first story is from me, Harris Laparoff. In my early years of high school, I was in love with a girl named Emily, and we dated twice. Once for three days, and then again later for three weeks. We had known each other since we were kids, and she was smart and funny, and in middle school. This was embarrassing and inconvenient. Embarrassing because any age difference made me feel creepy, and two grades of difference seemed beyond the pale. Inconvenient because being at different schools meant that we rarely saw each other. Still, when my feelings became too strong for me to hold, I confessed my crush over AOL Instant Messenger, my primary means of after-school socializing in those days. RIP, by the way. Shout out to Black Panda 7, my original screen name. I asked her if she wanted to go out, and then waited several excruciating moments for her reply. This was the first time I had ever confessed a crush to anyone, and the cocktail of sensations I felt then confessing my first ever crush, excitement, anxiety, relief, a sudden crushing certainty that I had just ruined my social life and was going to have to be a shut-in for the rest of high school to maintain any semblance of dignity, those feelings still echo through every romantic confession in my life since. And every time, for those moments between offering those feelings up and hearing a reply, I feel like that timid 13-year-old all over again. Eventually, Emily's reply came. Yeah, she said. And as was the way of dating in those days, that meant we were going out. We went out for a full three days and didn't see each other in person a single time until she asked me to meet her after school one day in the playground of her middle school. There, she confessed to me that she didn't actually have those feelings for me that she had said yes because she didn't know what else to say at the time, and that we should be friends. And just as quickly as we had met in the playground, she walked off, leaving me with my first ever heartbreak of rejection. Our relationship got a second chance about a year later. We spent a week together at a summer camp toward the end of summer, and though nothing happened between us there, I could feel that there was something different in the way she interacted with me though I was still too young and inexperienced to understand what it was. 
A few days after camp ended, she sent me a message letting me know that she now had a crush on me. Really? I said, unable to understand or believe the change that had happened in a year. I don't know how to explain it, she said, but every time I'm around you, my hormones go crazy. I still remember her saying that because it seemed like such an unreal thing for a person to say. This time around, we went out for a full three weeks, and once again, we never saw each other during it, except once when we ran into each other downtown with our respective cliques and exchanged an awkward hug. After three weeks, I broke up with her. I was tired of having a girlfriend at another school who I never saw, and there was another girl at my school, Berkeley High, who I'd been spending a lot of time with who had just confessed a crush on me. I ended up dating that girl for seven months, a substantial relationship in those days. Still, there was a part of me deep down that imagined that Emily and I were destined to keep trying this relationship until it worked. I looked forward to the next year when she would be at Berkeley High and the age difference wouldn't seem as large and we'd see each other regularly. But even after we were at the same school together, the timing just never worked for us. I still clung to this idea that we were soulmates still destined to give it another try for kind of an embarrassingly long time. Emily and I kept in casual contact through my first couple years of college, still chatting over I am just like the old days, but we never gave dating another go, and over time she stopped responding to my messages. It's been years now since the last time we spoke. I guess what this all goes to show is that just because something gets a second chance, if that second chance doesn't work out, it doesn't mean that it'll get a third, no matter how hard you believe in it. That last story was from Harris Laparoff, founder of The Second Page, DC resident, and restless spirit. This next story is provided to us by an anonymous contributor. In June of 2008, at age 21, I met my now ex-boyfriend, Randall. In March of 2009, I decided to take a break from our relationship. I can't even count how many times we slept together in that interim before we officially got back together in October of 2009. In the next seven years, I would move across the country to be with him twice. In March 2017, I decided I needed to take some time off from the relationship again. By now, I'm very sure that it's over for good. So that's about a seven year long second chance, right? Arguably, I was the one on probation here. I initiated the breakup. We were long distance. He had just accepted a summer job that would mean more time apart. He was my first boyfriend, and I hadn't had much chance to date around. It was just a temporary thing, I said. It would take too long for me to go through every painful aspect of the following time period, every hurtful thing we said and did to each other. But we found our way back to each other at the end of the summer and had an emotionally fraught reunion. Lying next to him, I asked him whether we were back together now. He said he wasn't sure we were ready. Fine, I thought. Guess that means I can still sleep with whoever I want. When Randall looked at my phone a month later and found my plans to meet up with another guy, he didn't agree. I had just taken a shower, and I came back into his room and he 
tossed the phone at me with the incriminating text on it. It was rainy that day and I spent most of it crying. I think we drove somewhere to take a walk. I remember he said, I know you're upset because we just drove by three Dalmatians and you didn't say anything. I remember that he texted the coworker that he'd had a fling with months ago to see if she could come visit him. I can't remember how I know this, if he told me or if I had read his phone or computer. Maybe he'd done it while I was in the room with him. For whatever reason, she was not able to or not interested. I was so deeply ashamed of myself while simultaneously feeling defensive and like I hadn't done anything wrong. I hadn't meant to do anything wrong. I didn't feel like I was doing anything wrong. In the days after he found my text, Randall stopped talking to me. He was completing some training for work at a local military base, and I found out the hard way that they will not let you onto a military base just because you explain that your boyfriend is there and you really need to talk to him. Randall texted me later that he was busy and needed some space. I told the guy that I had plans with that I still wanted to see him as a friend, but nothing was going to happen. At this point, he knew about all the drama with Randall, but he also knew better than to try to tell me what to do. When he dropped me off after our chaste evening together, he looked at me for a long time. Fast forward a few weeks, and it seemed as if Randall had forgiven me. I made a banana cream pie from scratch, and he decided that was a worthy enough occasion for us to be Facebook officially a couple again. I was overjoyed. As unstable as this all sounds, we stayed together for seven years after this. It was uneven at first, complicated by distance again, but when I moved in with him, things started to stabilize. We tried having a weekly date night and quickly learned that we couldn't afford them that often. I stopped being a vegetarian and started eating meat with him. We watched cooking shows and Star Trek together. We took walks in the woods and then in the park. We made friends together. We took care of each other when we were sick. It seemed like giving our relationship another shot had worked. I mean, did it? Is that automatically null if we broke up for good seven years later? Was it the right thing to do even if we were definitely going to fail again no matter what? Somehow I don't worry about it that much. By now, there are so many places I wouldn't have gone or people I wouldn't have met and things I wouldn't have experienced if I hadn't made that choice. Good ones, even. But when someone asks me if they should get back together with a boyfriend, I have a different answer than I used to. You look like hell tonight I don't believe the sight I haven't seen you since we had that awful fight It's been so long since I I heard you say goodbye And now I don't know what to say That last story was from an anonymous contributor Our next story, from Amanda Lozada I thought you'd had enough of all the stupid stuff You wanted more from me a perfect symmetry, but I just wasn't ever right. 
really believe in second chances. I think we tend to make the same kinds of mistakes over the course of a lifetime. And also, I resent the idea that I can only have two chances and tend to be the kind of person who's on my fifth or sixth or twentieth chance. As such, I have an enormous soft spot for broken things, and especially for broken instruments. And at any given time, I, I've tried to limit myself to one at a time, but um, I just tend to find them. A few years ago, uh, never having picked up a woodwind in my life, um, I bought a student clarinet at a Goodwill and brought it home and saw that the pads had all rotted out. And I was so determined to fix it that I walked over to the nearest student repair shop in my town. And he was a weird, weird repair person with boxes of parts and instruments to be repaired just piled to the ceiling. And pictures of saints all over the walls and he looked like someone out of a Pixar short film. Um, just curved like a mathematical equation and enormous glasses like half the size of his face. Um, big beard and thinning hair. And I explained to him that I wanted to fix it myself and without saying much of anything he took out a box of very carefully sorted clarinet pads and he dumped them out on the workbench and he pointed to them and told me to sit and I could look for the ones that I wanted. And I spent 40 minutes, maybe, picking through a mess of pads and trying to fit them to the cups and trying to fit the cups over the holes and seeing if they would fit or if they were too big or whatever. And by the end of the 40 minutes, I'd found all of them and I got up and I got up to intending to pay and he said no just take them and you did enough and so I went home and I glued all the cups to the clarinet and when it was mended I started learning how to play and I've gotten very good and uh, eventually passed off the clarinet to somebody who wanted it more this year I moved again for the fourth time in five years and it sort of started out as a joke uh, my friend texted me and we were both sort of in a respective rut and they said we should just blow up our relationships and move to Boston together and then we carried the joke too far <laughs> and got an apartment broker and got jobs here 
and moved into an apartment we both love. But there were a good few months there where I was completely uncertain and felt terrified because um, I was jobless and apartmentless and staying with some wonderful parents of my friends um, who live in Cambridge. But pretty, pretty scared. Um, pretty scared of putting all of my petty savings into the down payment on an apartment I wasn't sure I was going to be able to afford. But the night before um, I was supposed to pick up the keys to the new apartment, I had a dream that I was in this bus station and I found this broken guitar in the trash and it was just cracked across the neck, but otherwise it was beautiful. And I kept trying to look for who it belonged to and I, I couldn't find it. I couldn't find its owner. Um, and I woke up without having found them. And the next day as I'm getting ready to bring, you know, those most important things that you bring with you when you're not sure the next time you're going to be home. Um, I was getting ready to bring my, my week's worth of clothes and my toothbrush and the book that I was reading and, uh, and one guitar and some other sacred things. And I stopped at a Goodwill and in between looking at the antique uranium dishware and the painted doorknobs and the lockets inscribed uh, to Max from Aunt Susan, I turned my head and there was this little harmony guitar on the counter. I picked it up and it, it buzzed and it rattled and I had such an immediate fondness for it and I couldn't figure out why and resonated against my body and maybe that was part of it just had a nice resonance and then I started thinking about the dream I had and I looked at the neck and there it was a jagged break across the neck that had been well mended but was very visible so I bought it and I picked up strings and I restrung it and when I got home it felt like home even though the apartment was bare and I put all my stuff on the wood floors and I started to play first day I was there, wrote me a song, uh, which I'm going to play for you. Oh, dear. 
Amanda J. Lozada is a writer and performer working out of Boston, Massachusetts. She often plays music and tells stories under her alter ego, Lonesome Joan. Our next story this hour, from our very own Sean Hansen. I started writing music out of jealousy. In sixth grade, in a mental Olympics competition, some of the more talented cool kids had formed a small band and were entering the music composition category. Though, how cool were we really if we were teens in a mental Olympics competition? I hadn't written music before, but I was convinced I could sit down at a piano and write something cooler than all of them. Here was the trick. I was much less cool than them, but I had studied music theory for the past six years. I won with a really horrible song that I still get stuck in my head. I continued writing music out of jealousy. In eighth grade, one of my best friends started writing soundtrack snippets for video games, and I was awed by what he could do so readily with computer software I had never heard of before. I found a free MIDI sequencer and began to do the same, but this time there was no goal to overthrow a rival. The two of us eventually bonded and were close friends for a decade, both studying together, splitting one-hour lessons at the local conservatory, both going on to music composition degrees, both slowly growing apart as we moved to opposite coasts. I stopped writing music out of jealousy. Just shy of a decade from when I began writing, I graduated from a conservatory of music with a music composition degree. My colleagues numbered just over a dozen my first year, but only four or five of us our last year. Though I'd been selected in two competitions for performances of my best works, both conductors quietly opposed my pieces and did not program them. I wound up with nothing capable of being used in graduate school applications. My career had been quietly decided for me, but it was seeing the younger students who graduated and found themselves at Ivy League schools and programs I dreamt of that made me stop writing for myself. I was writing music that would never be played, for instruments nobody I knew studied, and my colleagues were writing for artists whose names I knew whose songs I listened to on my way to work. It was probably depression that drove me to giving composition another try. I started the same way I had failed, writing for instruments and instrumentalists. I wrote my old composition professor from school, who had just been turned down alongside the entire department for tenure in a ridiculous political move, which inspired me to stop contributing donations as an alumnus. He was positive in spite of all of this. How had I been so jaded just two years earlier, and yet my mentor could be so strong? He reached out to one of the young visiting professors I had never studied with, who now lived in New York. We began meeting bi-weekly, working on a previously planned organ solo for a patient friend who still would probably be willing to accept the piece, even though it is six years late. These lessons continued for half a year, until my anxiety disorder began asserting control over my life. I began to have trouble doing literally anything without the screaming critic, a voice that once was my internal critic at a time in which I was convinced I had no choice but to vie to become the most successful composer of my age. The screaming voice telling me nothing was safe, not mattering if it were a subway train or a quiet room with a cup of tea. Music fell apart. 
but on a whim, I purchased software for writing electronic music. This was a form of therapy in and of itself. I had decided to write incidental music, short songs less than a few minutes long, intent on expressing one mood. I've been doing that for a little over a year now, some written in waiting rooms for therapists, others written on weekends when not having anything to do was tantamount to listening to my anxiety brain yelling for hours, anything to shut it up for just a moment. My first attempts weren't shabby, and I quickly learned that after five years of eschewing programmatic music, or music that tells a story, the same skills used to create musical textures and well-formed musical gestures could be used to communicate, albeit at the expense of emotionally manipulating my listeners. I was in. I never finished that organ solo. I eventually stopped going to lessons with my new professor, as much as I was invigorated by the one-on-one -on -one coffees in the atrium near Lincoln Center and in a small, tiny apartment he rented out as a professional studio. What it did for me was something no therapy could do. It reinforced a part of myself that had existed since I was young and instilled a confidence that I still have skills, even if I create now for myself instead of others. Now I use it as an escape from a long day, to fill in for a co-passenger on a long train ride, as a momentary distraction or as a means for self-expression. I don't release most of my work, and I'm loath to sharing it beyond my closest friends, but there is inherent value in music and in creation in general in the therapeutic process. I started music composition out of jealousy, but I continue it out of love of being alive. Sean Hansen is a software engineer living in Brooklyn, New York. When not programming, he's working on this podcast, writing snippets of incidental music, playing Javanese gamelan, and thinking about queerness. Our next story, from Michael George Ellis. Though my family would say I remember close to nothing from my childhood, one thing I do remember was the moment I decided I wanted to write. I was in fifth grade. I was tall, awkward, a typical kid still figuring out how to be a person. It was the middle of the year when everyone in class was assigned to write a short story. The class accepted the assignment with all the candor of cats being asked to swim, but I didn't think it was that bad. Just another assignment, I figured. But this time was different, because this time there was a competition. Everyone would write stories and read them aloud to the class. Then the class would vote on the story they liked the best, and the winner would get some sort of prize. I had decided to write a historical fiction story taking place during the Civil War, like the movie Glory, which I had watched without my parents' permission earlier that year. I wrote my story about soldiers on the ground, like in Glory. It was about the chaos and carnage of battles, like in Glory. It was about taking a last stand in the face of incredible odds, but charging forth regardless, like in... Oh, well, you get the idea. My story was met with wide approval. Classmates told me after class how much they liked it, how exciting and detailed I was with my prose. This was the moment I remember, the moment where a portion of my brain buzzed to life and hummed like a light bulb. It was the realization of the joy of creating something you liked and seeing others enjoy it as well. 
This was the smile I'd see on my father's face when he finished telling a good story, the laugh of my friends after they delivered a great joke. I don't even remember if I won the contest or what the prize was, but it didn't matter. What mattered was that I wanted to write, and so I did. I wrote through middle school and high school, in and out of class. In college, I wrote more academically, focusing on my English degree, but indulged in fiction and poetry with my minor in creative writing. In each class, I received the praise I'd hoped for. You have a knack for this, and with enough practice and honing of your craft, you could do great work. These comments encouraged me to continue, but with a workload of novels to read and writing time dedicated to papers instead of stories, I more or less stopped. English degree, huh? People back home would say. So you're going into teaching? I would buy time by sipping a drink. Uh, no, not really, I'd answer. More of an author, I think. Hmm, they'd say, nodding. But what will you do to pay the bills? I hated these conversations. And then I graduated. But it was 2010, and the job market wasn't great. I moved back home, trying to manage my worry. I worked for a conference then in a violin workshop, then for Target. You need to find something more stable, my parents advised. My mother would email me job openings at huge corporations for positions like assistant brand manager that required a degree in communications and a passing grade on a rigorous assessment test before they'd even consider you. I don't have these qualifications, I'd say. My mother would sit next to me on the couch, looking at her hands. Well... Honey, you need to do something. So I did what I imagine a lot of English degree grads might have done. I applied to MFA programs. I applied to 12 MFA programs. Submissions required a GRE score. So I took a class and studied in the evenings when I finished work. When I passed, I started to write my submission story for my application. Months went by as I worked. The hours measured in venti-sized cardboard coffee cups in my local Starbucks. I became a regular, an accepted ghost haunting their usual corner, hunched over my laptop with a crease in my brow. And eventually, I was done. Off went the applications, off went the submissions. And I waited. And waited. And waited. Have you looked for some job openings recently? My mother said gently. I hadn't. The sinking feeling in my stomach got worse by the day, growing deeper and deeper, until the letters finally started turning up in the mailbox. You already know the bad news, though. I did, too, at the time. Sometimes you just know. After the last rejection came in, I put my stories away. My work embarrassed me. I had been mistaken. I wasn't cut out for this. I had to stop chasing that fantasy and focus on supporting myself. It was time to move on. It took a few years. I took classes at a nearby college and applied for positions where I could. Weekends were spent trying to ignore my problems, and weekdays were too exhausting for me to care about them. A stroke of pure luck landed me at a publishing company and a shot at being a real adult. I signed a lease on an apartment I paid bills, bought groceries, learned to cook. I enjoyed my free time. But I didn't write. 
Sometimes at work, I would scribble an idea down on paper. It felt good to have an interesting concept. Felt good to commit it to the page. But the ideas stayed there, marooned on that piece of scrap. My desk became an ocean, peppered with islands of ideas. The stories charted, but never visited. Have you written anything lately? My parents might ask. I haven't had the time, I'd say. And I'd change the subject quickly and breathe easier when it had passed. I didn't have time for five years. When we were reading in bed one night, my girlfriend closed her book and turned to me. Read me a bedtime story, she said. A bedtime story? What bedtime story? Make one up, she said. Write me a bedtime story and read it to me. There are few things as terrifying to someone who wants to write than the blank page of a new document. I found myself in front of that page then, fingers hovering above the keyboard. I'd type a word, then delete it. I'd get up to fill my water bottle. I'd stare and think in despair. But eventually, somehow, some way, I wrote. It wasn't good, nothing ever is to start, but it was something, a scene, half a chapter maybe, and I'd written it. I read it to my girlfriend the next night, and I felt that old glimmer again, the one from fifth grade. The writing wasn't good, I knew that, but it didn't matter. Sometimes you make something so that you can give it to others. The gift is the act of creating, and there's a warmth and vulnerability there worth exploring. When the story was over, she said, you should do more. I haven't written anything seriously since I graduated. I didn't feel like I had permission to anymore. But this month, I wrote her 13 pages of bedtime reading, and I hope to do so next month too. And the next one, and the one after. Maybe by then I won't be so afraid thinking about whether or not my work is any good, whether it will amount to anything besides word files in a folder on my laptop. Maybe by then I won't care. Maybe I'll accept that it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that I'm writing for someone, and we're enjoying it together. By then, I'll want to write. And I hope that I do. Michael Georgelis is an alumnus from Center College, class of 2010, and Northern Kentucky University, class of 2017. A collector of books, tea, and folklore, he works in Cincinnati, Ohio, to make textbooks cheaper for students everywhere. Our last story is by Emma Anderson. I've always believed in second chances. That is, for everyone except me. I'm a self-proclaimed perfectionist, particularly when it comes to relationships. I want to be right the first time, forever and always. I have a carefully crafted shield to guard against having to be given a second chance, too. If you don't text me back within four hours, my first thought is, oh god, what did I do? And then I think back through every interaction we've had to find the place where I fucked up and irreparably destroyed our friendship. Was it when I gently insinuated that your partner is boring because they only like playing Settlers of Catan? Was it when I failed to be enthusiastic about your newfound love for homemade kale chips? I know I shouldn't have said they were bitter. Or when I told you point-blank that I thought that Friends was a misogynist, homophobic, and transphobic sitcom and that's why I only made it through season three? 
Which one should I apologize for first? As you can probably guess, this line of thinking doesn't do much to improve the depths of my friendships. Being friends with someone who is constantly popping up with apologies for small and imagined missteps, when really your phone was just in your bag while you enjoyed dinner with your housemates, is exhausting. Or so I would guess. But worse than that, spending all my energy worrying about all the tiny ways I've offended someone gives me an excuse to ignore the bigger picture and miss when I actually fuck up. The thing is, I've learned a pretty good pattern for getting my friends, lovers, and partners to preemptively forgive me for any wrongdoing. When I start to feel like things are out of balance, I come back with a beautiful handmade gift, or a series of them, and I show up in spades. I just make sure that the response is huge compared to the potential misstep, and then everything's forgotten. I flaked on drinks last week, but made you scones and came to the poetry reading you didn't explicitly invite me to. I insinuated that your marriage was mainstream, but came by your house with handmade hand warmers and octopus print just because the fabric made me think of you. Oh yeah, it's easy to forget the minor things when faced with gifts like that. But I'm counting on the forgetting, not the working through. That's the problem. Not too long ago, I did actually fuck up, in a way that was not just an offhand comment, but the actually damaging, repeated fucking up that I'm truly afraid of doing, and I had to reckon with being given a second chance. Julia is the kind of person whose every friend and acquaintance gushes about how amazing, wonderful, and incredible she is. She and I went to college together, but it wasn't until after she moved to Seattle, after living abroad for several years, that we got close. I was so grateful for her friendship. She taught me the concept of compersion, experiencing joy for someone else's joy, through her actions. She always wanted to hear about my most recent crush or my day at school. We spent quiet hours drinking tea, telling stories and making art, going to yuppie restaurants and enjoying the hell out of them while talking about how to dismantle capitalism. Our relationship felt so easy, so joyful, so natural, and for that reason, I did not put a lot of work into it. Last fall, I knew something had shifted in my relationship with Julia. It wasn't as close and wonderful as it had previously been. I was overwhelmed with work, romantic relationships, and my own struggles with mental health. I knew in the background that I should have texted more, should have offered to hang out even when it felt like work to suggest it. But it wasn't until a visiting mutual friend asked awkwardly what was going on in our friendship that I even suspected that something was really wrong. And then started the litany. What did I say? What did I do or not do? When did it start? What should I be apologizing for? I took a deep breath, stopping my anxious patter of how do I fix this, and thought, what kind of friend do I want to be? I wanted to be the kind of friend who listened even when it wasn't easy, who took care of someone when it got messy, who demonstrated bravery to make my friend feel brave. And that meant I had to be willing to offer more than apologies to make things right. In March, we met up at our favorite hipster dessert place, neutral and shared territory. I offered to buy her her favorite boozy milkshake, Lafroig and smoked chocolate, and when she said yes, I knew things were serious. Money was not a way she usually let me take care of her. When we sat down, the apology started spilling out of my mouth. I've let you down so many times. I should have made time for you. I should have reached out. I knew I should change, but I just kept doing it. She interrupted me, and what she said next was terrifying. Actually, she said, you only fucked up once. But it was a big one. I was in crisis and I needed you and you weren't there. You said you were my family and you didn't show up. 
family shows up. So now I'm angry, and I don't know how to trust you. It was as if someone had thrown a bowling ball at my solar plexus and it had stuck there. It was worse, so much worse, than anything I could have imagined needing to apologize for. No combination of words could sound healing at this moment. It was true. She was right. Those words had come out of my mouth. I had told her she was my family. I had, and I knew she needed help, and I wasn't there. Shame bubbled up in me, overflowing through my mucous membranes as tears and snot, and I steadied myself enough to say, I need to cry, but I don't want you to have to watch me. So I'll be back in a minute. I locked myself in the bathroom and let myself wail. Never have I been so grateful for single occupancy public restrooms, with the realization that I had done what I was always so afraid of. I had irreparably damaged a friendship, not by anything silly or offensive, but by not being the friend that I really wanted to be. I think something happens when you don't stifle crying. While I'm sure the few people who used the adjacent bathroom while I was in there wondered if there was someone transforming into a werewolf, in the illusion of aloneness, I let the thing I was afraid of out of my throat, a little at a time, and eventually, I felt better. I looked up in the mirror, gasping, and saw my red, swollen face redefining ugly crying. What do you do when the thing you were afraid of has crept up on you and is here in the room? There's no closing the door on it or chasing it away with apologies. You have to stare it down and take one tiny step forward and then another. I emerged from the bathroom and sat down again. We were quiet for a moment as I watched her stir her melted milkshake and she watched me even out my breathing and wiped the last few tears leaking out my eyes. And then I asked, so what did I miss? And she told me about her life and I listened and bit back the urge to make connections to my own life and the stories she told, and instead just be there, listening, showing up. It was hard, but not impossible, and when she offered me a hug when we parted, I knew that I was getting a second chance. For a few months, the animal of my shame and fear of what I had done followed me around, still sat in the room with me. It was hard to remember that I couldn't just run at it or avoid it or bury it under my usual pile of gifts. Over and over again, I said to myself, just one tiny step forward. So I texted cute pictures and invited her to gatherings, and she did the same. We greeted each other warmly when we saw each other. I offered my emotional labor occasionally, but didn't ask for hers in return. Eventually, I noticed my shame animal fading and our reaching out to one another becoming habit again, and soon we were relying on each other in ways that we never had before. I was being a friend in ways that I didn't know I was capable of, and receiving that kind of friendship in return. For all the years that I obsessed over getting it right the first time, I hadn't realized that working through to a second chance could be even better, deeper, more meaningful, more grounded in the fullness of reality. I am so grateful for Julia being willing to call me out, and then to open up to giving me a second chance to prove myself as a worthy friend to her. And... As amazed as I am at her courage in that moment, and as grateful as I am for her courage, I have to remember to give my past self some grace, too. Because this story didn't escape without my gift-giving entirely. It's just that this time, 
I gave myself the gift of a tiny step towards something better instead of throwing up the shield. I gave myself a second chance. In the wake of the storm, I was shaken, I was reborn. I got another shot to make it to the top today. Emma Anderson lives in Greenfield, Massachusetts. She spends her time making delicious food, playing music, and calling contradances. There's a voice that's buried deep inside my head. As it stumbled out, it said, Hey, I got another chance. I was living like a zombie, head in a trance. So that's it. That's our show. Thanks for listening. If you liked it, wait around for a new episode in two weeks. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, handle Second Page Stories. Wait, that's totally... Is that our handle? Um, let's find out <laughs> right now live. <laughs> second Page Stories. The Second our Page. Our handle <laughs> is The Second Page. Follow us on Twitter, handle The Second Page. We've also got a Facebook page. Just search for The Second Page. The you second can find all of the episodes from this season and the last one at secondpage.org. The Second Page is released under a Creative Commons license. Details about this, along with the instructions for how to submit your story to The Second Page, can be found on our website. Next week's theme is Gratitude, and submissions are strongly preferred by Friday, November 17th, which doesn't leave you too much time. If you have questions, our contact info is also up online along with tips on how to record your story. I want to give a big thanks to everyone who made this happen. Thanks to all our storytellers, Amanda, Michael, Emma, me and Sean also told stories. We used music this week from several artists, Poddington Bear, Josh Woodward, and our very own Sean Hansen. Look them up, check them out, support them. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. See you. All right, that's it. <laughs> All right, bye everyone.